You know, most of you uh, growing up had a dream that you went to school, you were sitting there listening to the teacher, glanced under your desk and realized you had come to school in your underwear. (laughs) Almost every kid has that dream. Or later on when you're in high school or college, you're in a class taking a test, everybody's writing frantically and you realize that you haven't studied for the test and you don't even know what class you're in and you can't figure out where you are. I still have those dreams every once in a while. Anyway, fear is a big part of all of our lives. And one of the important things about growing up is learning to deal with fear, learning to work our way through it. Children are fearful. They're, they're afraid the first time they're away from mommy. They're afraid of their first day at school, their first uh, school play or recital, their first overnighter, their first just about anything. This is called neophobia, fear of new things. And we all suffer from it from, from one degree to another. Like I said, part of growing up, an essential part of growing up, is working our way through these fears and, and, and being able to, to experience these fears but continue to go ahead. If we don't work through that growing up, those fears grow up with us and they can become paralyzing, overwhelming, keep us from being able or willing to do anything, much less anything new. I looked in my medical dictionary under phobias just to see what was there, and there were page after page of phobias listed. And these were just the most common ones, you know, and in these lists were the ones that we all know, claustrophobia, which is fear of confinement, or acrophobia, which is fear of high places, or since the movie has been arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Let me ask you, how many people know what batrachophobia is? A few biology majors may know that. It's fear of frogs. (laughs) One that I suffered from growing up, uh, and probably a little bit even today, is parthenophobia, fear of girls. (laughs) Here's one for a singles group, scalarophobia, fear of bad men. Here's one we need a little bit more of around here. It's uh, peccatophobia, fear of sinning. A couple we need less around here are panophobia and phronemophobia, fear of work and fear of thinking. (laughs) And there's one that that covers just about everything, panophobia. And I'm not making these up. Panophobia means fear of absolutely everything. And if this uh, discussion is making you uncomfortable, it's probably because you have Helenophobia. This was actually in there. Fear of cumbersome pseudoscientific terms. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we laugh about these, but for people who, who suffer from these phobias, man, it's no laughing matter. And, and uh, beyond these phobias are the normal concerns that scare us. Uh, you know, our, our, our concerns for our children, for their future, for the decisions they're making, our, our fear of, uh, of what's happening at work, for our, for our jobs, for our financial security, or even viability, our fear of rejection from our, our spouse or our parents or our children or the people we work with. You know, no one is untouched by fear. The other day I was uh, sitting in a waiting room in the hospital while a woman was waiting. Uh, her husband was in, a, uh, in brain surgery. Less than a week before, he was feeling fine. 
They uh, didn't know there was anything wrong. He went in to see the doctor with some minor complaints, a little bit of blurred vision, headache, no big deal. Doctor examined him, and within six days, he's laying on an operating table, eight-hour surgery. They didn't know whether he was going to survive the surgery. He walked into the hospital feeling fine, and they didn't know whether he was going to walk out of the hospital. And they were terrified. You know, and my heart ached for them. But it also scares me down to my toes. There is so much of our lives that is beyond our control. We don't know what's going to happen next and we can't do anything about it. Something can happen at any time to any one of us or, or, or to our spouses or to our children, or to our parents. You know, is it any wonder that we're fearful? Larry Crabb says, the governing emotional energy in the unregenerate personality is fear. And what he's saying is, apart from the grace of God, the thing that influences our behavior more than any other factor is fear. Now, if this is true, and I I think it could probably be argued both biblically and empirically that this is true, if this is true, then we need to learn how to deal with fear. Fortunately, the Bible says a lot about fear. From beginning to end, it deals with fear. It speaks clearly and repeatedly about fear. We're told that, that fear entered the human experience as a result of Adam's sin. Immediately after he sinned, he was afraid. And that fear controlled his behavior. It affected his behavior. He went and hid. All the way through from that point on, every time that God calls somebody to use them, the first thing he has to deal with is their fear. You read the the, the call of Abraham. Before he was even Abraham, God said to him, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Joshua, when he called Joshua and told Joshua that he was going to use him, he said to him, Do not be afraid. I have delivered them into your hands. When Jeremiah was afraid of telling the people the truth about God, afraid of what they would do to him, God says to him, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. When the angel appeared to Mary, first thing he said to her is, Do not fear, Mary, for that you have found favor in the sight of God. Again, over and over, you see that every time God calls somebody, the very first thing he has to deal with is his or her fear. Well, in the book that uh, we're looking at in Mark, we have a couple of uh, examples of, of Jesus teaching the disciples about fear. And the way he does that is not to sit down and lecture on fear. He takes them through a couple of situations in which they experience fear. In fact, they experience terror. And they have a chance to see how Jesus handles that. So turn with me to Mark 4. And uh, we're going to start with verse 35. Let me just read through verse 41, and then we'll come back and make some comments on this first story. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with him, just as he was, in the boat. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. And he said, or excuse me, and he himself was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? 
And being aroused, he rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it was perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so cowardly? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, I want you to get a feel for what's going on here. Jesus has had a long day teaching. The uh, crowds had been sitting around uh, the shore. He had been sitting on a boat teaching them. And it's evening. We're told that the, the sun's already going down. It's late, and everybody's still there. And Jesus couldn't just get off and walk back to Capernaum, where, where Peter's house was. The whole crowd would have followed him. So what, Peter, or what Jesus does is, hey, let's just go across the lake. It's about a five-mile trip. So let's just head out and go that way. That way the crowds can't follow us. We'll get some rest. So they head out. They don't have a chance to pack their toothbrushes or anything. They just go. Jesus is bushed, goes back into the stern, the back of the ship where it's a little more stable, lays down on a couple of pillows, and falls asleep. As they're sailing across the lake, the wind starts to pick up, and pretty soon it's really blowing. In, in my translation, it called it a fierce gale. In the NIV, calls it a furious squall, which uh, sounds like a two-year-old not getting its way. But the term really uh, stands for hurricane force winds. I mean, it was a terrible storm. And realize who these guys were that Jesus was with, what they used to do for a living. These guys were fishermen. They were sailors. They lived on this lake. They knew this lake. They weren't afraid of a few choppy waves. Uh, several years back, my family was in the Philippines with a team from Cole. And we wanted to go uh, to another island than the one we were on to minister. It was just a couple of miles by, uh, by sea. And we all climbed into this little boat. And it was probably about the same size as the one Jesus was on. It was a, a relatively calm day. We were all in that boat. And even though it was calm, and every time that boat rose and fell, our hearts were rising and falling with it. And the, the Filipino fishermen who were, were driving the boat were enjoying this greatly. They, the uh, landlubber Americans with their fear and trepidation. Actually, I got a lot of secured, uh, security out of their amusement. If I had looked at them and seen fear on their faces, then I would have known we were in trouble. See, and these guys knew enough to know they were in trouble. They knew enough to know that this was it. This was checkout time. This is the big one. And so they go and they wake up Jesus and they're scared. Jesus rubs his eyes, looks at the wind and the, uh, the waves. And says, knock it off. And they do. I mean, the wind stops. The lake turns to glass. And the disciples go into shock. And they had never seen anything like this. They were afraid before. And now they are terrified. They say, who is this? Realize these guys were not prepared for this kind of thing. Sure, they had seen Jesus do some healings and healing services and cast out a demon or two. But to control the power of the wind and the, and the sea, there was no way for them to absorb that. No, nothing they could compare it to. And realize we're not all that much better off. You know, atomic weapons, uh, nuclear devices are puny compared to the power of the wind and of the sea. We know of nothing other than perhaps gravity nearly so powerful. 
Then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Why are you guys so cowardly? Do you not have faith yet? Now, wait a minute. I want to come to the disciples' defense here. What does Jesus expect from them? Was it wrong for them to wake Jesus up? Did he wake up grumpy? Or or was it wrong to be afraid? These guys had good reason to be afraid. I mean, they thought they were going to die, and they had good reason to think they were going to die. The, the, The boat's taking water, for gosh sakes. They had good reason. So, so what's the problem? Why is Jesus saying to them, don't you have any faith yet? I think to answer that, those questions, we've got to look exactly what they did and exactly what Jesus said to them. See, they thought they were going to die and they were afraid. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there would have been something wrong if they thought they were going to die And they weren't afraid. And there wasn't adrenaline pumping through their veins. See, there's nothing wrong with being afraid. But look what they do. They don't come to Jesus and say, Master, we're afraid. Help us. Master, we're going to die. Please do something. They wake him up and they say, We're dying here and you don't even care. You know, they, they, They accuse him. They attack him. They blame him. It's his fault they're out there in the first place. It was his idea to come out here. They're just obeying his instructions. They're just following what he says. And now look at the mess they're in. Everything's falling apart. They're going to die and Jesus doesn't even care. See, they don't come and, and, and expose their need. They don't come and be vulnerable before him. They come attacking. They figure it's too late. It's all over. And they're angry. And what does Jesus say? First, he says, why are you so cowardly? The word uh, translated timid in the NASB and, and afraid in the NIV, I think really should be translated cowardly. Because the word refers not to the emotion of fear, but to the response to that emotion of fear. So the difference between cowardice and courage is not the intensity or the amount of fear someone feels. It's their response to that fear, how they deal with it, how they handle that fear. In Stephen Crane's Red Badge of Courage, Henry has to learn this lesson, that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to do what is right in the face of nearly overwhelming fear. Jesus does not rebuke them for their fear. He rebukes them for their cowardice. Again, it's not wrong to be afraid. There's no sin in fear. But when we respond to that fear with cowardice, when we turn on Him and attack Him and accuse Him and curse Him, or we turn on others aggressively or hatefully, and then we're wrong. We've sinned. No matter how intense that fear was, when we act cowardly, we are wrong. I realize also that Jesus understands. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't just climb out of the boat, let them sink and say, later to you guys. I don't need you. He stays in the boat with them. And he takes care of their need. He understands their fear. But he doesn't just leave it there. He also confronts them. See, and that's what he does with us. When we are, are dealing with fear and our response to that fear is cowardly, or to turn on him in anger, 
to, to turn on others. He understands. But He doesn't just leave us there. What He does is, is, is He begins to teach us. He begins to show us more of Himself, more of His faithfulness, more of His ability. And then He calls us to be strong and to be courageous, knowing that He's with us, knowing that He's going to stay in the boat with us. Now, the real problem with cowardice is that it is lack of faith. Faith is one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented words in the Bible. To have faith doesn't mean to be able to drum up some uh, unrealistic optimism, some, some vague sense that everything's going to turn out all right. I know it is. I know it is. That's not faith. Faith purely and simply means trust. They're synonyms. Faith is trust. And what Jesus is saying is, don't you trust me yet? Don't you know that I care? Haven't you seen the way I love people? You don't know that I really do care? Because see, that's what they were accusing him of. He said, we're dying and you don't even care. Jesus says, no, I care a lot. Don't you understand that? You know, when we're going through some time that scares us, that's out of control, that we don't know what's going on, that's when it seems like God's not paying attention, like He doesn't care. And all we can hear is our own panicked thoughts and our own hearts pounding. And we wonder, where is God in all of this? We feel like David, Psalm 13, where he says, How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me forever? When are you going to pay attention, God? I, I like David. I, I really get a lot of encouragement from the psalmist because he's so bold to tell God exactly what he's feeling. See, and we can trust God that much to tell him exactly what we're feeling. But in the process, we don't have to attack him. We don't have to curse him or accuse him. We can be honest. We can, we can be bold and say, God, I am afraid. God, I don't like this at all. God, I'm confused by this. But as we do that, we can not act cowardly. We can be strong and courageous. We can remember that He is in the boat with us and that He does care. That He isn't being careless of our needs. That He is paying attention. That He can handle whatever comes our way. Ray Steadman has a quote that he used in teaching this passage that I heard a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. He says, when you're in one of life's storms, remember two things. The boat won't sink, and the storm won't last forever. And we know that's true, not because we want it to be true, not because we're so optimistic, but we know that's true because Jesus is in the boat with us. And ultimately, ultimately the boat won't sink, and the storm won't last for eternity The boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. There are a lot of storms that come into our lives, things that are beyond our control, physical illness or disease or injury, uh, jobs that, that, that fall apart on us, tornadoes, earthquakes, relationships that are out of control. And these things scare us for good reason. That's a realistic fear. It's a rational fear. But in the midst of those fears, we can remind ourselves 
The boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. Jesus is in the boat with us and he cares. Reminds me uh, of a story, one of my favorite stories. I'm sure I've told you guys before, but I'll tell you again because I like it. Uh, Malcolm Anderson used to go to church here. He used to be a warrant officer in the army. One of his jobs was ferrying airplanes from one base to another. They just sent him to get the airplane. He and a sergeant would go get the airplane, bring it to the base where they needed it. One time he got sent down to Texas, pick up this old DC-3. It was in good shape, but they were going to refurbish it into a staff officer's transport plane. So they had torn out all of the interior where the passengers sit, and it looked a wreck. I mean, it was just shredded and wires hanging loose and everything. They are getting ready to take off, and the tower radios them and asks if they can take a soldier who needs to go to the same base. They say, sure. So this kid comes out, 18 years old, fresh out of boot camp. He climbs in the airplane and looks around. And so Malcolm and the sergeant figure they're going to have some fun with this kid. So they tell him, this plane is condemned. We don't know if it's going to make it. We're taking it to the junkyard. And to make the story believable, they issue the kid a parachute, go through the whole routine, tell him how to use it and everything. You know, Malcolm says his kid's eyes are like this. Well, they get up, they go out there, they take off, they get up to cruising altitude, and the, they, they lean out the, the fuel mixture for the engines, and the engines sputter a little. They look at each other and they say, this is it, we're going down. Before they could stop this kid, he, he leaps to his feet, runs to the back of the airplane, throws open the door, and jumps. <laughs> Malcolm says he got to the door in time to see this parachute opening out over the desert. He uh, radioed the base to come out and pick this kid up, and the tower ordered them back, and he said the uh, base commander was so furious at him. He said, if this wouldn't look so bad on my own record, I'd bust you a stripe. Well, the point of that story (laughs) is that kid didn't need to jump. I mean, as far as he knew, that plane was going in, and he was going to get out of it. But in fact, it wasn't. In fact, the plane was fine. And when you're going through life's storm and your boat is sinking and you're taking in water, the fact is that Jesus is in that boat with you. And the boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. Well, before I am completely out of time, I want to get to the next story. I like it even better. It's a, uh, one of the most vivid stories in the Bible. It's a horror story. Last uh, weekend, my daughter had a slumber party for her birthday. And after we got them all settled down and we got into bed, one of the girls, BJ, started telling her ghost stories. And she had been saving these up for weeks. She had even been working on them on the computer to get them just right. And I had to get up several times during the night. One time I got a little knock on the door and there's this little girl saying, I can't sleep. So I got them all settled down. And finally, after they were all asleep, I came back in. And they'd been sleeping on the living room floor, big living room, no furniture in that room. And there they all, seven girls in about a four foot by four foot square, huddled in the corner sleeping where they had, where they had been huddling. And I think they love ghost stories because it scares them and it kind of overwhelms and distracts from the, the fears they have to live with every day. They love, kids love roller coasters, anything that'll scare them. But anyway, here's a, a horror story with the right ending. Let me read through uh, all the way from uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 to verse 20, and then we'll come back through and make comments. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizims, 
And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with with a chain, because they had often bound him with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs, uh, in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said, Go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You know, now think about it. What time is it? When had they left the other shore? After the sun had gone down. So it's nighttime. They've been blown off course. They end up in this graveyard, which was probably a region that had all of these dark, eerie caves in which they laid the dead bodies as tombs. When I was... Uh, in junior high, I used to like to walk around the graveyard in our, our, in my hometown because it was scary. It was eerie. Well, why is a graveyard scary? What are you afraid of in a graveyard? You're afraid that this guy might be there. I mean, this guy, Mark describes this guy. He, he's, he's naked. He's probably got chains hanging on him. They he, he, tried to chain him before and he had shattered the chains and broken the shackles. And he, he, he was up on the mountain screaming and, 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 and shouting and, and rattling around. He was taking stones and smashing and gashing himself. So he was beat up and bruised and bloody. And it was wild. Nobody could control this guy. This guy made Freddy Krueger look like a choir boy. And this guy was for real. And we're told that immediately when Jesus and the disciples, they got out of the boat, this guy saw him from a long way off. He's up there on the mountain howling at the moon, screaming and shaking and, and rattling the trees. And he comes running down the mountain. The word for run there could also be translated rush or, or to attack in battle, to charge in battle. This guy comes charging down off the mountain straight at Jesus and the disciples. doesn't tell us, but I would bet you more than one disciple was splashing through the water knees high trying to get back to that boat. The rest of them were lined up single file behind Jesus, peeking out from behind him. 
This guy comes screaming down to him and throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he shouts out in a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? Now that seems to be the title by which demons know Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, because that's what they call him all the time. And apparently Jesus had been starting to cast the demons out of this guy. And Jesus says, What's your name? And the demon says, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion was up to about 6,000 Roman troops. Now, here Jesus is absolutely in control of the situation. But this poor guy was terribly, horribly demonized, being, being oppressed, being punished by these demons day and night. So these demons, they beg Jesus. They say, please don't throw us into the pit. Throw us into these swine. And again, you see, Jesus is in total control. He can do what he chooses. And I don't know if Jesus had compassion even on the demons. I don't, I don't know what's going on here exactly. But Jesus gives permission for them to go into the pigs. And all of these pigs go rushing down the bank into the water and they're drowned. That's a bummer for the pigs. I don't know why Jesus did this. I'm sure there's a good reason. The best I could come up with was this was a, a visible sign that the, that the demons were out and the demons were gone. And everybody knew without a doubt that that had happened. I have a friend who was ministering in China. And a couple of Chinese Christians that had been working with came up to him and said, Quick, come with us. We've got to go cast a demon out of someone. My friend had never been involved with anything like that. Uh, so he was rather skeptical and a whole lot afraid. They went to this little hut. To get in the hut, there was, they had to step over this, this mangy-looking dog laying in the doorway. And there, laying on the floor of this hovel, was a, a man who was writhing, had gashed himself, was bleeding from his head, obviously demon-possessed. And so the three of them started praying. My friend said there were two praying in faith and one praying in fear. And as they were praying... Suddenly that dog jumped up, it ran around frantically and fell over dead. And the man was calm. And everyone in that village knew that the God, who there is nothing he cannot do, that's the name they had for God, the, he can, the, the nothing he cannot do God had done this. And the whole village came to Christ as a result of that. Anyway, back to our story. These herdsmen, they run and tell everyone in the towns what's going on. They run into the villages. And so by morning, all the people show up. They come see what's happened. They want to see for themselves. And there's this man whom they had been terrified of. Sitting, clothed, calm, talking to Jesus in his right mind. Their response was very similar to the disciples' response in the boat. They were afraid. They were terrified. They didn't know how to deal with this. They, they didn't know what to do with somebody who had so much power. They knew he had power because they had tried to bind this man. They tried to chain him and were completely unable to. And here he is sitting in front of Jesus. Jesus had tamed him. So they saw his power. But they didn't know his mercy. They didn't understand that that power was controlled by love, by perfect love that would have cast out their fears. And so they were afraid. They just didn't know what to do. Some suggest that they were also um, 
concerned about their vested interest in pork belly futures, but I just think they didn't know how to deal with this. Here was someone who scared them. And people's response to fear is to, to push them away. You know, when they saw this deliverance, they didn't see Jesus' heart of compassion. When they saw this man, they didn't see a man who was tormented day and night. They saw someone who frightened them, someone who was a danger to them, who they had to chase out of their town, out of their villages, into the tombs. But when Jesus saw this man, he saw a man who was being destroyed, a man who was miserable because of the effects of the demons in his life. And incidentally, what you see in this extreme case is what happens, or what the, what the goal is in any demonic activity, what the goal is in any lure to sin. The, the goal, the end of sin, is that we be like this man, isolated, tormented, restless, no ability to rest day and night, self-destructive, oppressed. But anyway, when, they, when, when the people of the area saw what had happened to this man, they didn't see Jesus' heart. So they were afraid, and they begged Jesus to leave them. On the other hand, the man who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus to let him go with him. But Jesus refused. Jesus said, no, I want you to go home to your people, to your friends and family, and tell them what the Lord has done to you, and tell them of His mercy. Again, His mercy is what they didn't understand. That's the part that they missed. They saw the power, but they didn't know His mercy. And so Jesus asked this guy to tell all of them about His mercy. Now, the dramatic thing in the, in the context of the book of Mark, is that, that Jesus asked this man to tell everybody. Up to this point, every other incident that we have recorded, Jesus tries to discourage people from talking. He, he silences the demon. He, he told the man who had leprosy not to tell anybody, anybody. And now he's telling this man to tell everybody, tell all his friends, tell all his family. Now what's the difference? Well, the difference is here is the testimony that Jesus wants. Here's a testimony with power. Here's a testimony of a changed life, and that's what gives it power. This isn't the testimony of demons who intellectually know the truth. This isn't the testimony of somebody who is, has just been impressed with, with Jesus' power. This is somebody whose life has been transformed. The ultimate proof of Christianity is recreated men and women. That's the testimony that Jesus wants. And that's the testimony He wants from us. He wants us to tell our friends and our family just what the Lord has done for us. And especially about His great mercy. As a postscript to this story, later on in chapter 8, when Jesus returns to this area, 4,000 people come out to visit, or to, to, to listen to him, to see him. Apparently this man had done his job. Apparently he had told everybody about Jesus' mercy because they no longer feared him. They no longer were afraid to have him in their midst. In fact, they welcomed him and they listened to what he had to say. Well, well, what is the bottom line to these two stories? 
The bottom line is very simple and very important. The bottom line is that Jesus can handle what scares you. Whatever it is, whether it's, it's circumstances beyond your control or whether it's, it's people that frighten you or intimidate you or hurt you, Jesus can handle whatever scares you. What scares you? Is it physical illness or pain? Is it failing at the job game? A rejection by others, if they only knew what you were really like, if they only knew your secret life. Is it failing as a husband? Is it never getting married? Is it never amounting to anything? Never being significant, somebody that's, that's special and important? Is it losing your kids? You see, whatever it is, unfortunately our tendency is to let these fears drive a wedge between us and Christ. We're like these people, the Gerizines, who know that, that, that he has power, know that he can do things. But when we're afraid, we push him away. We're like, like frightened animals snapping at the one who would help us. This is the worst thing. He's the only one that can help us. Trust him. Be courageous. In the midst of your fears, pour your heart out to Him. Trust Him enough to tell Him exactly how you feel. Don't be afraid to be honest. He will never reject you. But also remind yourself, He can handle it. You see, He is in the boat with you. And the boat won't sink, and the storm won't last forever. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that when we're afraid, we so often turn on you. We become angry. That's the only way we know how to respond to our fear, is with anger or, or, or with flight. We run away from you. We think you don't care. We forget your heart, how much you really do care. Lord, remind us of who you are, of your faithfulness, of your power, but especially of your great mercy. Lord, remind us of these truths that we've seen this morning, this week, as we deal with our fears, as we run into things that scare us, as we find ourselves reacting to situations and circumstances in our lives in ways that show how afraid we really are. Remind us just how great your mercy is. Remind us that you will never leave us or forsake us. You are in in the boat with us, and the boat won't sink. The storm won't last forever. Lord, we praise you for this love. We praise you for your faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen.